Within the depths of the strip mall of the dam lies a decrepit video store long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders spinning their patient webs. Beyond the ancient batwing doors guarding the sepulcher where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles. To scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We the 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 story so far. Profligator Daniel of the Cinemania Society has been busy using his Clark Nova rote writer to author a story about a recent conclave for which he acted as pontifex of presentment. The film he selected was John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, a Lovecraftian horror film from 1994. It stars Sam Neill as John Trent, a freelance insurance investigator turned insane asylum inmate. Hang on, didn't we see this bit two conclaves ago? Anyway, the film opens with Trent being bundled into a padded cell, but he's also given a crayon, which he inexplicably uses to scribble crucifixes all over himself and his jammies. But don't worry, he wants to be there. When the resident psychiatrist, played by David Warner, shows up, we go one level deeper. Into a story within a story as Trent explains the history of how he came to be there. Wait, seriously, didn't we do this movie already? Oh well. Trent tells a head shrinker he was hired by a publisher, played by Charlton Heston, to investigate the disappearance of their star horror hack, Sutter Kane, a two-bit ripoff of real-life horror hack Stephen King, whose books apparently drive people to madness. Kane's, not King's. After a collection of strange and improbable events, including an attack by an axe-wiggling maniac and some Scooby-Doo puzzle-solving using torn-up covers of books, Trent is partnered with a rep from a publishing company, Linda Stiles, played by Julie Carmen. They go on a road trip to find the supposedly fictional New Hampshire town of Hobbs End, the setting of Sutter Kane's novels, because Trent suspects the town is actually real and they'll find Kane there. They encounter some weird happenings on the road, though admittedly none are quite as weird as Trent himself whipping out a cartoon clown horn from the glove box and honking Styles awake with it before they cross an old-fashioned covered bridge and arrive in Hobbs End. Profligator Daniel takes a break from banging the typewriter to indulge in some bug powder and now we're all caught up. Let's see where Daniel is now. They call me mad. Mad! But I knew we had to go on. We were only halfway through the movie, after all, and things were finally starting to get all freaky. That's right, Danny boy. Type dirty on me. Okay, you promised you wouldn't make it weird. Anyway, after finding the fictional town of Hobbs End to be real, Sam Neill was determined to get right to the bottom of everything. The bottom of madness! Welcome back, fellow Inquisitors. Shall we pick up with where we left off? With In the Mouth of Madness, everyone's favorite movie, right? Yay, I love this film. I love this film better than I love peanut butter, and every one of you knows that peanut butter is my favorite food. Well, I, for one, support all of Daniel's choices. I think we should get started. Professor Andrea, would you care to elaborate and illuminate us on Act Two? I would be delighted. It looks like a rather charming slice of small-town America, except that it's totally deserted and occasionally creepy children of the corn appear and disappear, and sometimes there's freaky dogs watching you. Frankly, it's a Stephen King fan stream. Sam decides to check into the delightful colonial-style guest house of madness for their stay. The only staff member is a creepy old lady, which is pretty standard in this kind of place. And Styles starts to notice something odd. 
It's almost like it's an Airbnb. <laughs> Everything seems exactly the way the town is described in the Sutter Kane books. Not only that, but a creepy painting she notices seems to be moving. When she mentions this to Sam Neill, he basically thinks she's a bit of a nut. He is in no way willing to accept that anything untoward is going on at all. Yeah, way to mansplain art to her. Oh, yes, no, he certainly mansplains. It uh, does not appear that there's a well actually in the painting, but as the painting changes, I think one does appear. <laughs> so wait, if you're mansplaining reality, does that make it gaslighting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well played. Just Here's where we get to the major theme of the film. Sam Neill insists that this is reality, not something out of a book. He believes in what is real. Styles is already willing to consider that maybe what Sutter Kane wrote about wasn't all fiction. Somewhat proving the point, she shows Sam a giant freaky old church in the middle of town, just like Sutter Kane wrote about. So Sam is confused whether this life or whether it's just fantasy. Was he caught in a landslide with no escape from this reality? He just needs to open his eyes, look up to the skies and see. I'm warning you. And then Brother Zacharias stopped quoting lyric. Now that was an actual church. The Cathedral of the Transfiguration is in Toronto. The, uh, the Canadian city of Markham, actually, just north of Toronto. It's a real place, and it, it is the one of the weirdest-looking churches, but they did get a real place for the film. This It looks like it's a set or a miniature or a model or something, but no, it's a real thing. So wait, are you saying that Sutter Kane wrote Toronto? <laughs> yes. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So the, this small town had a large open field outside of town, and they just thought, you know what that needs? Right there in the middle of nowhere, a gigantic gothic church filled with horrible imagery. And onion domes. Fucking onion domes. Well, Markham does rhyme with Arkham. Oh, God. Oh, you're right. Oh, yes. No. I had not put that together. I mean, I'm a bad H.P. Lovecraft fan. Thank you. Oh, my God. I, and and I, I decided you know to check it out. In the Kane book, this church is a seat of some horrible, malevolent cosmic power. You know, freakish, betentacled horrors just waiting to invade our reality. The whole deal. The weird happenings continue to happen, weirdly. The bunch of weird kids run past, and then a group of enraged farmer types with guns arrive to remonstrate. They appear to believe that Cain is in the church, and that he has stolen one of their kids, which is not the sort of thing that is really acceptable in the community. Also not your standard writer behavior. Not really, no. Suddenly, in the church doorway, Sutter Kane himself appears, and it seems that he can summon angry dogs at will because a load of them appear and attack the locals. This isn't what you'd call a warm and friendly church, more the abandon all hope ye sinners kind of thing. No, it was more uh. of a Mr. Burns kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> After all that whole bunch of nonsense, Sam is furious. Back at the hotel, he insists that this all has to be an elaborate hoax, and Styles admits it. This was supposed to be a publicity stunt, but it's gone wrong. There was never supposed to be any of this eldritch nonsense. When is there but ever, really, though? That's why she's so convinced that something greater is going on. No less than the end of the world, just as Sutter Kane wrote it. Surely the answers are in the missing new manuscript. Sam Neill is not having any of this bullshit, of course and it's going to get out there and find some answers. So that does explain it. I was wondering earlier, it's like, okay, of all the characters to be like, wait a minute, 
reality is warped, crazy bullshit's going on. Like Styles is so cold and logical and well, she's a replicant, right? <laughs> that like of all the people to be like, hey, something supernatural might be going on here. It's like, really her? But she knows what the fraud is supposed to be and it's not going according to that plan. Then she's like, wait a minute. I haven't controlled this. So she's actually a control freak is where I'm going with this. So uh, yeah, that's- That uh, reminds me of a joke. Knock, knock. Who's there? Control freak. Now you say control freak who? Control freak who? (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it. Now let me see if I can explain it to you. And then brother Zachariah got it. Oh yeah, okay. Master of the door over here. Can't handle a knock-knock joke. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more of a knob kind of guy. Well then. So he goes downstairs and he too, finally, now notices that the freaky painting from before has changed. The man and woman in the picture now have scary, distorted faces, and there's no way around this. It sort of looks like she's giving him a snaky hand job, just from the angle it's painted at. It's totally accidental, but once you see it, you just can't look away. It's right there. It's sort of like the Mona Lisa's eyes. It follows you around the room. <laughs> you seriously so- almost made me do a spit take with that. I had exactly the same experience with uh, sneaky hand jobs. No, no, no. <laughs> yes, kind of, kind of. This, uh, Star Trek: Wrath of Khan. Okay, I'm gonna ruin this movie for all of you. Thank so you. the scene at the very end, you know, where Spock goes into the reactor chamber. Spoiler alerts. Uh-huh. Um, and Kirk is like, "No, my friend!" And like all the ensigns have to hold him back. Watch it again. One of the ensigns has grabbed him right around the waist with his head down. So it absolutely looks like he's giving like Kirk a, like a comfort hummer right then and there, <laughs> like to, to alleviate him from the loss and grief of losing his friend. Right? No, seriously, it is, and it's this <laughs> everybody thinks it's like the best scene in all of Star Trek ever, right? But now you're gonna watch it again, and it's fucking ruined. <laughs> Brother Daniel, you've you've introduced us to some horrifying flights of fantasy and phantasmagoria in your time in this society, but that's really up there. <laughs> you're welcome. I thought you were going to say something about uh, sounding involving CT eels, but um, no, that's well, no, you know, no, you've exceeded that. Starfleet might be in space, but it is technically still the Navy, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Hold on, someone at the door. Uh, it's an ad break. Tell them we don't want any. We don't want any of your revenue. We're an anarcho-syndicalist commune. No, 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 we never voted on that. Okay, that I've made the ad break go away. It did leave a big bag of money on the door for all of you profiteering capitalist pig dogs. And no one noticed when Inquisitor Daniel pockets all the ad revenue to buy more bug powder for his favorite typewriter. Hmm? What do you think, Clark Nova? Oh, 
think you've got a problem, and I like the way you think. Sam tells the freaky old lady he's going out, and she's behaving even more freaky than normal, and almost looks like there's something going on under the counter where she's standing. Styles rushes out and steals the car, which distracts Sam, so he never notices that the freaky old woman has, for reasons which are unclear, a groaning naked man handcuffed to her ankle. Shit, it's like one of those hotels. Like I said, Airbnb. She's living her best life, man. <laughs> but is he? Could be worse. It could be hostile. Uh, it's one of those hotels where you don't ask questions and don't make eye contact. And don't hit anything with the black light. Sam has just about had it with all of this nonsense and goes for a walk. It's night and he's trying to put it all together in his head. He's still sure this is all some kind of trick. He goes into the quaint local bar of madness for a beer. And in walks one of those angry mob of farmers from before. But the guy is looking kind of scratched up, you know, from all the dogs. He relates that Kane has let something out, which took the kids first and is now working on everyone else. Sam still isn't buying it. And you know who that guy is? The farmer. He's the warlock. It's Vigo. none other than Wilhelm von Homburg himself. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Ghostbusters, Vigo. Ghostbusters yeah, the, 2. The right. painting from Ghostbusters 2. That's him. And oh. he's, uh, he's, he's a story in and of himself. But that's a story for another time. Cut to the creepy church and Styles is walking up. Apparently, she's decided to go and see Sutter Kane for herself. She has a brief interlude with a crowd of creepy kids who by now are looking quite slimy and hellish. I don't know about interlude. That's more like an interobscenity. <laughs> oh, come on. That's reaching. Bird play. <laughs> around. You both reached around and you shook hands at the back. <laughs> reaching around harder than an ensign around Captain Kirk. <laughs> Pretty much. Sorry, please do continue. They have that whole creepy supernatural vibe, which kids pull off so effortlessly. The church is about as welcoming as any Byzantine structure lit with actual burning torches. Wait, no, flamethrowers. In wall sconces always tends to be. Inside, Sutter Kane is waiting, typing away at a desk next to a creepy dog. They do say you should set aside personal space to do your writing. And for Sutter Kane, that space is the basement of an abandoned satanic nexus of unfathomable evil. He's pretty relaxed about it all. From what I hear, this is uh, the same writing environment that Anne Rice likes. <laughs> Liked, past tense. Sutter Kane shows Styles a creepy, pulsating wooden door, which appears weirdly sweaty, and claims that the creatures beyond had been telling him what to write all this time and giving him the power to make it all real. That's nice of them. By this point, Styles is looking a little hypnotized by the raw sexual magnetism of Jürgen Prochnow in a chunky 90s turtleneck sweater. He shows her the manuscript and it glows with raw power, forcing her to see flashes of weird violence, just like Sam Neill did in the prologue. Styles is past his prologue. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Styles is totally on board with whatever his deal is now and caresses him. From behind, we see the back of Jorgen's neck is turned into a mass of slimy eldritch tumors and whatnot. Some with actual faces. Don't worry, that will neither be nor explained or ever referenced again. In the hotel, Sam is starting to lose his grip. First Styles arrives completely mashed out of her gourd and ranting. 
Then the weird painting is changed again to just show a mass of tentacles where a delightfully hellish handjob was once taking place. Taking <laughs> a look around, he goes into the creepy cellar of madness. After hearing weird noises, and the freakish lady from before has gone all naked lunch with tentacles and slime and so forth, Sam departs expediently wanting none of that whole deal. I mean, who would really? I wonder if they remembered what their, you know, safe word was. Was it tentacles? Was it madness? <laughs> Back in his room, when he discovers the styles is having a tentacle fiesta in the bathroom, which is certainly odd. <laughs> tentacle <laughs> fiesta. <guess>. Yes. <laughs> like with, with a mariachi band. That's what <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. And when she emerges, she punches him through a door, which to be honest, he's probably had coming for a while. <laughs> As he flees the hotel, we see in the background that something horrible and tentacly has developed in the greenhouse. Apparently, this too is referenced in one of the novels, but the greenhouse unpleasantness by Sutter Kane won't be otherwise featuring in this movie. What a waste. It was a beautiful monster. You see it for a flash, and then it's gone, and that's it. What a terrible title to a book. <laughs> the greenhouse of unpleasantness. <laughs> Right next to the gazebo of uncertainty. He is starting to consider getting out of this town. The people here have started to go strange. Which is kind of a thing because, you know, he starts out the film looking for strange and now oh, he decides no. to go. In the, in the street, there are gatherings of various mutants going about their business. A woman runs past him. She looks like someone has literally slapped the grin off her face and she's got an ax. She pauses to say, fuck you, and runs off to whatever she's getting up to. It's like Detroit with better town planning. <laughs> and charming covered bridges. <laughs> better water supply. Sam flees into the bar from before, and the farmer is still there, but he's torn up and bleeding. He claims that he can't remember what came first, the town folk or the book. Everything here has become a Sutter Kane story. He's literally slumped over with blood running down his face, and Sam Neill still tries to insist that they're all playing an elaborate hoax. He's really sticking to his guns. Unfortunately, so is the farmer, who puts a shotgun under his chin and apologizes that this is just the way he's written before blowing his head off. There's a lot of gore in this picture, but weirdly, they don't actually show that part. Budget run out. This is surprisingly decent acting from someone who really only acts about as well as the painting. There's only one thing left to do, and that's to get out of Dodge. Sam spots Siles outside, acting all freaky-deaky and resolves that situation without a second thought by punching her into a grill bullness and bundling her into their car. <laughs> classy Sam Neil, real classy. But what would you expect from Damien? After a nifty bit of hot wiring, they're away. Hot wiring, you say? Do you expect Sorry. us to believe that an insurance investigator would know how to hotwire a car? Not only that, but to just pick up a screwdriver and somehow jam that into the keyhole and get the car working. Well, it is the 90s. Roaring off into the night on the road out of town, Stiles suddenly tries to kiss him. She claims it's what Kane has written for her. It's simply what the readers want. She has literally become a plot device. Pulling to a halt, Sam gets out. This is the spot where they hit the guy on the bike before. Styles does a freaky reverse crab walk thing out of the car and a rather nifty bit of practical effects work spins her own head upside down. It's kind of gross, but she sure is flexible. 
it's a shame Sam Neill is such a creep in this picture. Yeah, this was for me like probably one of the freakiest bits in the film is when she just turned her head around like that. Yeah, was not expecting that. <laughs> they actually hired a contortionist to do this part of the film and had her wear a mask of the actress's face. Oh damn! On her head. Um, I mean, um, you've just got to uh, think of the possibilities. You got to remember <laughs> your safe word. Well, no, the uh, the the interesting thing is, like, I mean, this is clearly a ripoff of The Exorcist. You know, the whole spinning the head around trope, which The Exorcist set. And what's what's funny about that is, you wonder, like, okay, how did they get that gag? Well, they had. Uh, I know this isn't. This is. I'm going to make a, something about The Exorcist and not about this, but in relation to this, I think you guys might find this kind of funny. I read that apparently they made this um, animatronic doll where they had the head spin around on an axis. They had a, they had it on a rheostat, but they wanted to make sure that it would be actually scary. So they went out to a Georgetown street and they set the doll in the back of the car and the effects guy laid on the floor with the rheostat. And anytime somebody came walking by the car, he would start turning it so the head would track whoever's walking by. And just when they started to pass it, he'd crank the rheostat up so the head would start to spin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love special effects guys. Yeah. So wait, so so uh, Professor Andrea. So wait, so now the um, the contortionist. So the contortionist was actually able to turn their head like that, and they just put a mask. no. Um, the contortionist did the crab walking, but they had a mask of the actress's face. Oh, she wore okay. on the other side of her head, but she couldn't see, so she had to be guided by sound. Oh, <laughs> like this sonar crab. This way, dear crab. Spider crab. Spider crab. Oh no. <laughs> There's only so many ways for a contortionist to get into the movie industry, you know, and this happens to be one of them. So, all right. All right. Take us away, Professor Andrea. Sam has reached the limits of chivalry and gets the fuck out of there without her. He's on the road straight out of town now, but no matter where he goes, the road changes and brings him straight back into town and the waiting crowd of flesh mutants gathered there. He even passes bicycle guy again, and this time Styles is riding on the back trying to look creepy while an old man essentially chauffeurs her around on a kid's bike. Good effort, Styles. Somehow I don't <laughs> think this film will pass the Bechtel test. No. <laughs> Clearly this isn't going to work. So Sam Neill decides that if this town is going to go all Detroit on him, he'll play Robocop and drive straight through all the flesh meat. You can actually see the moment when Sam thinks to himself, I'm going to run down some motherfuckers tonight, and it's masterful. <laughs> Beautiful <laughs> piece of acting. You remember that scene in RoboCop when RoboCop shot that guy in the dick? <laughs> I think we all know that. Yeah. Good times. Unfortunately, he spots Styles in the crowd and in the one moment in the movie that Sam Neill reconsiders assaulting a woman, at every opportunity, he swerves and crashes. Things were starting to get crazy. There were flesh lumps, tentacles, and screaming. Oh, what screaming? I could barely hear the movie, which was also getting quite strange by this point. Chris, you need to gain some perspective, Daniel. You need to put things in their proper place. Do you know what the proper place to put bug powder is? Don't say it. It's in the mouth of madness, Danny boy. <laughs> Yet. 
20th episode of the Sydney Mania Society featured some asshole, another one, a third one, Andrea Palladino, another asshole, and that fucker Ethan Ireland. Written by Andy Slack and Daniel Scribner, those hacks. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland, because he does everything for this goddamn podcast, doesn't he? Graphic design by Andy Slack because he just can't help himself. Music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com if you dare. And check out our social media feeds because you have no life and no attention span. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. If you liked what you heard, there's something wrong with you. So please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media to all of your followers. Followers, don't you? Or find us on Ko-Fi. What the fuck's on Ko-Fi? Just throw us a few bones. Actual, literal, human femurs. We love to chew on them and then make fun stuff out of them for folks. But it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon. Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like, to create Cinemania in your brain. So stay tuned, the Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society LLC, or so say our demonic attorneys.